0: Hey everyone, this is Jesh D. I'm here with Ryan Fullen from World of Speakers. And uh, we had a really great time talking today about uh, the amount of joy that you're having in your work and in your life and how you can get more of that. So thanks for uh, hanging out with us. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host,
1: Ryan Foland. All right, welcome back here to another episode of World of Speakers, where we find speakers from around the world who you can meet, learn from, and be inspired by. Today, we've got Jesh Derox. And I am excited because I've done a little research online, but we haven't actually met. And so I'm meeting you here with everyone. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you so much. Good. Well, let's hope that uh, we don't get disconnected here because one thing that I've learned in the last call is that you're patient. And this time I know that you're persistent. So uh, (laughs) as as we work through this here, um, let's go back to the story of where it started. It sounds like you weren't a military brat moving all around. You were a, a dreamer brat. And you you said your dad was a dreamer and you traveled around the US and that's about as far as we got. So catch us up to speed, where this all started. Yeah,
0: my dad um had a lot that he kinda wanted to do and chase and achieve in his life. And he just kinda took our family around for the ride. So from very young age, we were moving constantly. I think by the time I was eighteen, I lived in about 27 different houses across the United States and Canada. And so, you know, I was never in uh, anywhere for very long. We were sometimes in a place for a month, sometimes three months. Sometimes we lived in our car. So we're kind of at the lowest level of poverty in the United States that you can get uh, to without being, you know, completely homeless. And uh, that was an incredible upbringing. It was (laughs) very formative on me. Some of the advantages of that were having to develop a flexibility and adaptability. And I think another big advantage was I didn't build a sense of personal identification around the same kind of things that most people do, which would be like, you know, a certain home or a certain community or certain, you know, friendships. And so that's left me with a very fluid sense of self uh, compared to, you know, what happens to most people. The downside of that is, of course, you don't get the chance to build long term relationships, which is a really huge part of how humans feel a sense of stability and uh, safety in their lives. So when you're a young kid and you're meeting other young kids, that's not really that big of a deal because very young children. Are very connective they're very quick to accept you into the fold so to speak but the older that i got you know moving into junior high and then in high school i was always the new guy and sometimes the new guy can be you know interesting or a curiosity but rarely is that the person that you know you invite over to your house right and into some of the deeper friendship bond kind of activities and so as i grew up the older that i got i just felt in- increasingly Isolated from the social structure that I saw around me that most people had been, you know, steeping in since the time they were born. And I developed, because of that, a really strong fascination with connection and uh, how bonding works and how it forms and what prevents it from happening. So, what was an incredible weakness of mine, you know, which was an incredible amount of loneliness, actually kind of ended up becoming something that I became so fascinated with and kind of obsessed with that, you know, 20 years later, I now get to travel around the world and talk about connection. So (laughs) it's kind of cool how that can happen.
1: Funny how that comes full circle, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you, at a certain point, uh, know that you wanted to share this message? How did you come up with this core message that you're sharing?
0: Well as you know, with most things, it's a long story, but the, the short version is what was a disadvantage for me in my teens, which was being very isolated and growing up, you know, outside the culture kind of started becoming an advantage for me in a business way. In my early twenties, I entered into the field of photography and I had not been taught the traditional way. And, um, you know, as I said, didn't have a lot of the cultural references that other people had. And because of that, I ended up just kind of doing it completely my own way. For me, photography was never really about taking pictures. It was about connecting with people because as soon as you give somebody a camera, they kind of get invited into these social rituals, you know, that most people take for granted, like birthday parties and weddings and family reunions and all of these places where people who have bonds kind of, you know, form just to celebrate each other. And uh, it was amazing for me. To all of a sudden have that opportunity to feel like I was included and I could, you know, be close to the action and really, I mean, when you're a photographer, you get to stare at people and it's okay, (laughs) right? (laughs) Normally, it's very not okay to do things like that. So I got to be, you know, in quite emotionally intimate situations with people. Became especially fascinated with uh, people who were in love and, uh, you know, with weddings. And uh, to make a long story short. Because photography was always about connection for me, I ended up developing this technique that's called moment design that uh, solves a really huge problem for photographers. And that is, as you probably know, when somebody holds up a camera in front of your face, if you're like most people, you get very awkward and weird yeah. and yeah. give what they call camera smile. And of course, camera smile is not the best version of you. Yeah, you would never win any friends or lovers or whatever if you only <laughs> use camera smile. and yet uh, that defense mechanism comes up almost every time somebody tries to take a picture so photographers have this really you know tough challenge of how do i get this complete stranger to show me the same sides of themselves that you know you would normally only show to a loved one or a close friend you know on demand within a few moments uh, it's a very challenging thing to do and to my knowledge it had never been, you know, addressed before um, in the terms of teaching. The great portrait artists learned how to do it, but it was such an esoteric kind of method, you know, that it was just written off to, uh, quote unquote, personality. If you had the personality, you could get that out of people. And if you couldn't, well, you were screwed.
1: Yeah, almost like an Austin Powers, right, where you have to be larger than life and you're in a burrow, you're in a burrow, you're digging, yeah. digging. Yes, yes, no, exactly. no. <laughs> exactly.
0: And some kind of personality, specifically extroverts, you know, can pull that off. Uh, but a lot of photographers are actually introverts, you know, like All I right. was. They they are into it because they don't like being on the other side of the camera. They oh, like observing.
1: Right. They like to be so, behind the camera. Yeah, the
0: safe side. So um, I basically developed this technique, firstly, just for my own purposes, that uh, brings down what I call the personal walls very, very quickly. There are some situations in which people will bond very fast. And I got really, really interested in those. One of the most formative experiences that happened in my early 20s is I was photographing at the time some weddings of some oil workers who lived in northern Canada. And oil working is already a very tough job. There's huge machinery. Things can break. There can be explosions. Uh, that's just in a normal you know, place. Northern Canada, you're talking about sometimes temperatures as low as minus 30 for like two weeks. So having to work that kind of a job up there, you know, you have to be a very, very tough, tough individual. So a lot of these people that were working there, you know, were were giants of men, you know, they come from long lines, very tough, you know, family situations. Yeah. Hardened souls hardened. and they're very hard to get on a smile, right? <laughs> oh God. Yeah. And so, you know, their girls would usually be into it when we try to take the picture because typically, you know, girls are more interested in that. But when it came to them, they would just be these stone walls. And, um, these same guys, you know, if I had called them an artist or something like that or creative, they probably would have beat me up, you know, for accusing them of you know, <laughs> some slanderous, you yes. know, uh, thing. But um, what would happen is I would see these guys on the wedding day and they would get up to give a speech, you know, about their brother. And they would say something like, you know, uh, that time, you know, when when dad had left and you were, you just really showed up for me and... I'm always going to love you for that. And I'll I'll never forget that. And they would say this speech and it would be so beautiful that the entire audience would just fall. And as a speaker, and I know you're a speaker too, to be able to get an entire room of people to cry because they're so moved by what you're saying is actually quite a powerful act of of art. It's an incredibly powerful creative uh, expression. And the fact that this guy who never would have considered himself an artist on this day can all of a sudden get up in front of an audience and give himself permission somehow to access this piece of him and share this piece of him that moves everybody to tears is fascinating to me Yeah, because for him, it was a, it was a wedding. It was a special day, but for me, it was just a Saturday. I saw this weekend and week out. And so probably he would never access that place again in his entire life, or at least not very many times. But for some reason, something about the elements that were in place there allowed him to access that subconsciously. And that really got me exploring, um, could the elements that are in place that caused him to feel like he could access that piece, could those elements be uh, found? Could they be replicated? And it got me really interested in exploring what are the ingredients of what we call beautiful moments? and ultimately could you make a beautiful moment on purpose because powerful photographs are only powerful when they're photographing a powerful moment and a lot of times photography is so focused on the picture that most people who are taking pictures completely forget that there has to be something really interesting and engaging happening when you're photographing somebody for the photograph itself to be interesting right so i basically started exploring more about moments than i did about photography and of course why we open ourselves up to engage in a moment how it affects us you know the walls that we have that normally prevent it the kind of elements that are in place you know that allow us to be able to engage with really beautiful moments it turns out are, are definable and are repeatable and i created this very simple technique where within moments you can you can access Genuine, authentic sides of uh, almost anybody. And that became kind of a huge sweeping thing in the photography industry. And there's about 15,000 people in the world now who kind of practice that technique, moment design. And uh, there's teachers that teach it, and it kind of became a whole thing. But it really kind of, for me, became the start of this journey that was much more interesting to me than photography, which was. Exploring, you know, how feelings happen in us. And uh what if we could have beautiful moments on purpose? Since they are things that are happening inside of us, why don't we have more control over that? So um, since that time, which is about 10 years ago, I was kind of simultaneously building that part of, of my work and helping to train photographers in that. But um on the side became increasingly interested in you know, emotional intelligence and feeling generation and something I call pattern disruption and just this whole kind of host of ways to try to describe it, to build simple, practical language for how do we feel things and why don't we feel it on purpose? Why is it disconnected from our conscious thought process? And could that be changed?
1: Yeah. And one, one of the videos I saw where you were explaining uh, to a large audience and you'd ask them who here has ever had feelings, right? And you get a yeah. giggle. And then you say, well, how many were they bad feelings? And then how many times have you continuously thought that? And, uh, you know, you make this analogy of there's being something in your brain, like an appendage or an arm or a foot that your body has the ability to use, but you just don't tap into it. So is that, is that kind of one of those core emotional intelligence that you're helping people to understand by giving them the, I love this, you said the the natural language to sort of describe it. Cause you get me now I don't do, you know, oil mining up in Canada, but I'm like a man's man and talking about my feelings is probably one of the most difficult things for me to do, even though like I love communication. I'm a geek about it and put me up on stage in front of 10,000 people. Fine. But if it's me and another person, it's like, (laughs) I'm trying to tap into that moment. Um, That's a real problem that I think people um, would be willing and eager to solve.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to a couple of things. One that I think is really, really fascinating uh, that I've kind of been obsessed with for a long time is that everything you've ever felt in your entire life was generated in your own brain. You know, So it's not even possible to feel something that your own brain chemistry didn't make. And right. uh, for most people, you know, that's, that's an obvious thing. And yet it's, it's not really something we think about a lot. A lot of us are very dependent on external situations, on external people, on external stimuli to generate these feelings inside of us. So that part in the brain, you know, another analogy I like to use is it's kind of like an instrument and it has all of these keys and there's different combinations of keys that produce different sounds. And that's like different combinations of keys that produce different feelings. And most of us just never learn to use that instrument. And instead of you know building the mastery over that, which would take just as long if not longer, you know, than any instrument, we just don't even really know it's there. So we we bump into things randomly, and sometimes it's a good sound, and sometimes it's not. And that's kind of like throwing rocks at keys on a piano or something, instead <laughs> of learning to use it ourselves. And um, it's really hard to talk about this kind of stuff. Uh, classically without sounding cheesy or corny or saying things like follow your heart, you know, which is like great, but is really difficult to know <laughs> what, what that even means. And so it's clear that a few people, that a small percentage of the people, you know, on earth learn how to tap into this place to generate incredibly powerful feelings for themselves, which then they share in the form of music, in the form of, you know, painting, in the form of incredible books and then they're able to outlet those feelings, which then the rest of us can kind of vicariously tap into. And then we feel something big from them. And when you really look at what artists do, the function that they they provide, that's what's really happening is these artists are feeling huge things and then they're creating forms and containers so that other people can also feel those huge things. Because when you think like... Why is your favorite movie your favorite movie? Why is your favorite book your favorite book? Your favorite song your favorite song? Because of the way it makes you feel. And so we are very interconnected as a species. And the way that we feel has a huge impact, you know, on other people around us. But people who are called artists, I think the really the only difference between them and so-called regular people are they found sub, some way subconsciously to build a conscious uh, connection to the place where feelings are generated. And, um, I mean, that's a whole nother huge subject we could talk about for a long time because a lot of the ways that they did that don't end up being, you know, the healthiest all of the time.
1: Right. Yeah. Extreme- Different ways to channel it. Well, I want, I want to go back to this, this quote, which is everything that you feel is generated by yourself. Remind me of that again. What, what is the, this concept that everything that you feel you've created in your own mind?
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, our feelings, you know, through our, our nervous system and all of that are, are sparked from our own brain. So our brain will experience something and then interpret that experience and then send a feeling response um, because of that. And because that happens subconsciously, it's not a part of something that we know how to control. We tend to associate those feelings uh, with whatever it was we were experiencing. So, you know, if somebody, we meet somebody and they seem like they're in a bad mood or they don't like us for some reason, we'll probably get a bad feeling about them. And, uh, the funny thing is, is, you know, a, as we all know, a person is not just one thing <laughs> and someone that you met on a certain day, you know, and you didn't like them very much because they didn't seem to like you. Maybe they had just had a really bad day and they happen to be the best person in the world, you know, or their son, you know, thinks they're the best father ever or their, you know, wife thinks they're the most amazing man or, you know, it's, it's, um, It's very clear that if if one thing was happening, 10 different people or 100 different people experiencing it could all experience it in a completely different way, which just points back to we have a huge responsibility, at least theoretically, to be able to choose how we respond to things and choose the feelings that different experiences give us, ideally to be beneficial to us instead of being hampering. And as in that talk that you were referencing, I was just pointing out that most of the time, that's not even a choice that we're making consciously. It just, it's almost like a roulette, you know, for most of us. Just happens. happens.
1: Okay. So, so here's, here's the crux for all those speakers out there. How do we take that concept and help people deal with speech anxiety? Or even if you're at a high level speaking, you still can have these thoughts or these impressions. Maybe it's about the audience or it's about the stage, or maybe there's something wrong with the microphone, but have you worked with speakers to help use this same concept to help them really address and understand all of the anxiety you feel, all of the stress that you feel. It's all because of you at the end of the day. Yes, um, absolutely. I think, I think that's a really interesting application of that when it comes to speaking, because um, physiology makes it so that when you get up in front of the stage, however, you know, however well-versed or however experienced you are, there's always a bit of anxiety that, I like Mm -hmm. to turn into energy, but Mm -hmm. if you're empowering people who are artists and saying, all your thoughts are your own responsibility. So figure out how to turn that into something positive. That's a very powerful Mm -hmm. tool for people who are trying to, you know, speak their art essentially. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are some tangible tips of, I mean, do you have a niche clientele that you work with to help them get over that or through that? How does this concept incorporate into, um, you know, uh, actionable items that people can use who are trying to speak to become more mm-hmm. comfortable, more confident, things along those lines.
0: Yes. I, um, as I said, I kind of started in the photography world. That's where I got my, my beginning, but it really branched out quick because it just comes down to communication. And so I now work, um, I do, you know, speeches in front of large groups. I do small workshops and I also, you know, I'm a personal consultant for um, several high level creatives in completely different industries. I've worked with Grammy winning musicians and uh, even neuroscientists and, um, you know, speakers and writers, all of it, because it, it's really all the same thing when it comes down to it. It's all about uh, what we're experiencing and being able to share what we're experiencing with someone else. So I definitely have some practical tips for people to explore. And I think the first one is um, kind of a little bit obvious, but uh, maybe should be should be laid out first. And that is, only talk about things that really light you up because when you're genuinely lit up by something there's a certain uh, energy that happens in the body and in the brain that can uh push forward somebody through some of those you know nervous nervous tendencies that we have if you look at what anxiety is and where it comes from it's really uh, the animal part of the brain being protective trying to prevent you from danger and um That goes back to millions of years old, you know, instincts that we have that for the most part just aren't really relevant. Speaking is considered one of the scariest things in the world to do. Seinfeld did a joke one time about how, based on a poll that was made, that death was the number two scariest thing in the world for people and public speaking was number one. So... (laughs) He said, that means for most people at a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is true. And and it just, I yeah. mean, that fear, I think, stops a lot of people from from communicating. And it doesn't have to be on stage. But I, I kind of joke around with people and I, I ask large groups, who here recognizes themselves and identifies as a public speaker? And out of a few hundred people, maybe you'll get 10 hands. Mm-hmm. Then I ask people how many people actually opened their mouth and spoke in public today? And <laughs> I forced them to all raise their hands. I say, look, no matter what mm-hmm. you learn today, you are all officially public speakers. And I think sometimes it's just that initial bridge of, uh, of getting over the fact that you can be a public speaker. You just don't have to be great is the only thing that starts to get you going. And I love this idea of what gets you fired up because there are certain things that you do not like to talk about, <laughs> right? Right. And then you're saying if you can find the things that you light up about the stories that you're telling, things that you get the, the goosebumps, that's a, a great internal beacon to help sort of squash all the other stuff that you'd have to come up with in order to create that energy around something that maybe you're not interested in.
0: Yes. Um, let me just address something really quick that I think is important. I think sure. a lot of artists and people you know who are expressive, including public speakers or people who want to be public speakers, they not always but often uh, come from a more introverted personality or a more shy personality and one of the reasons for that is because people who are introverted or tend more towards you know what people call shyness i tend to be in their own thoughts more and the only way to develop an expertise worth sharing of any kind is is to spend a lot of time you know thinking and refining and exploring personally uh nicole tesla who is You know, obviously one of the greatest inventors of all time, AC electricity was kind of a big deal. It made a big mark on all of us. He said, the secret of invention, question mark, be alone. And um, I love that quote, you know, because he's just he's saying, you want to go really far in a direction that's gonna end up helping a lot of people. There has to be a lot of time, you know, spent just with the self. So A lot of speakers and, you know, communicators and artists tend towards, you know, the shyness, at least originally. And so there's this barrier that you, you have to get through. But a lot of people um, that, that have been that way for a long time become identified like that and call themselves, you know, shy and all these other words that uh, have some kind of inaccuracy circumstantially, but aren't really fundamentally true. And a way that I quickly prove that is, let's take a very shy person, you know, or somebody who identifies as shy. Who is who is in a, a burning building you know they probably once the the burning you know, starts happening all around them and there's flames and fire
1: they probably wouldn't shyly leave the building you know right the, the same animal instincts would then become very relevant at that point right and taps into that that human nature of survival yeah it, it, it goes back to these mo- you know these elements i was discussing
0: before of you know um there are certain elements that happen that when we see them, when we feel them, when we respond to them, suddenly, you know, we we have access to different parts of ourselves. So they would probably run through the building saying fire, 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 you know, which is very clearly public speaking. And they wouldn't they wouldn't feel shy about that at all. Right. You know, so if you really believe in your message and you know it's as important as fire, 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 you're going to have a huge benefit to, to not be as shy when you share it. So I think that's the first you know, strong tip that I would give is make sure that the content you're sharing is something that you believe in so much and you know is so important and will be so helpful to people that um, it's about delivering that message to them. It's not about you. It's not about how they hear you. It's just that important of a message. So that's probably number one. Number two, I would say. Well,
1: here, real, know, so, real, real, real okay. quick on that one real quick. No, it's okay. Because I, I've heard a few of the things that you do, you have these tests that you give to people. So I don't know if you already have the fire test, but I think that <laughs> I think that this would be a cool fire test, right? Cool. Like, because everybody knows the fire test. And, you know, maybe there's a fire going on outside right now because the world is like, you know, like letting us know that this is important. <laughs> mm, that's great. This, the fire test, right? So if you want to become a speaker, hold on real quick. You know what a fire test is or a, a fire alarm. What would be okay. better to have it be the fire test or say the, the fire alarm, the fire alarm? <laughs> uh, I like fire alarm. Okay. So how about this? The fire alarm test. Everybody knows that you have to check your fire alarm. You have to check it to make sure it has batteries. Right. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of this fire alarm is analogous to somebody who has a purpose of relaying a message. Now you're Mm -hmm. not just the person that relays a message all the time, because if you just call fire in a crowded theater, like over and over, um, Mm -hmm. the little boy who cried wolf, your message Mm -hmm. isn't going to resonate. But Mm -hmm. if you do your own fire detector test, and make sure that the message, the beeping noise that comes out, is the one single most important thing that you get excited about and just lights you up, literally, <laughs> then that's the, the fire test. I like that. That's that's kind of a cool, easy-to-digest concept. There you go. You have another test. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. So what's, what's the second nugget?
0: The second one is, uh, this was taught to me by a friend a long time ago when I first started speaking about 10 years ago. And uh, it's about again addressing you know this part of the brain that is going to be scared in this situation, and build a sense of familiarity. So rarely is somebody afraid in their shower, you know. Rarely are they afraid in their in their own bed. It's partly the unfamiliarity of being on this huge stage in this place you've never been to that you know part of your physiology subconsciously is is scouting it all for danger, you know. And again, that's just an ancient evolutionary you know impulse in us. So. One thing that I like to do is I go to the place I'm going to be speaking the day before or a couple hours before or thirty minutes before, hopefully when no one else is in there. And I walk all around the room and I sit in the chairs. I'll sit in different chairs and i'll I'll imagine uh, myself up on stage. I'll imagine watching myself up on stage and I'll'll imagine, feeling uh, connected to what i'm saying up there and so what i'm doing i'll probably do that with 20 or 30 seats you know over the course of maybe 10 minutes um before the speech starts before anyone else is in the room and it's implanting in my subconscious physiology to the animal part of my brain that this is a familiar place for me this is a safe place for me this is a powerful place for me this is a place where something really good is going to happen and so, uh, then later on when I am speaking to everyone in the stage and I'm looking at those audience members, I already have that, that strong association, um, that this, this is my place. This is, this is my home court. So that's something that, um, I do that
1: I, I really, really love as well. The home court test. The home court test. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also this is interesting because it taps into that original message, which is all of your thoughts originate in your own brain. And if you're mm-hmm. feeding your brain with thoughts that create comfort, create power, create familiar- familiarity, mm-hmm. then you're setting yourself up for more control over thoughts that you're going to have no matter what. You get up on stage and if you're new to the room, your thoughts will be influenced by this animal instinct. But mm-hmm. by you going out there and actually walking the home court, uh, it makes it your own. I think that's a that's an interesting uh, early advantage, right? Yeah, I mean, there is a home court advantage. That's it's kind Definitely. of the home court advantage theory. You it always is. do better when you're at home, yeah. and so I like that. Very cool. I got one more for you if you want it. Let's do it. A three is a magic number. I love threes. <laughs> what's your? Do you know what your numerology number is? No. Oh, my gosh. You, sir, would have so much fun. You're going to have to pick me up. So I'll I'll connect you (laughs) with a couple people that could do it for you. But they basically just take your birthday and they do this weird math. It's fun if you see them do it. And Mm -hmm. they come up with a number and like I'm a number three. And just like I'm a Leo, everything that's true about a Leo is true about me for the most part. And for a number three, everything that that has to do with it. And it's weird because I I see three all over the place. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a magic number. That's why there's three bears, three blind mice. Mm-hmm. And I think that we really count one, two, three, many. I think that's just it. I think we should just learn how to count to three. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you would trip out on uh, on your numerology. I'm excited for you to find that out. Um, so a bit of witchcraft Brilliant. for you. All right. So what's, what's the number three tip of the day?
0: Uh, the number three one is when you know your material so well that you don't have to think about it anymore, that's when it really starts being fun because a big part of what's scary about being on stage is what if you mess up (laughs) you know what if you mess up what if you don't say the words right and uh in my experience people who you know are, are speakers will treat it completely differently or who want to be speakers will be completely different in that than if they were going to be cellists so i don't know anybody you know who was deciding they wanted to be a cellist was going to go perform on stage and would would give it a good you know 15 minutes or an hour of practice <laughs> yeah.
1: having never played before. i'll just kind of i'll just i'll wing through the first few notes until i <laughs> catch yeah. it right? yeah <laughs> the, there really is no
0: um substitute for for the practice and i initially you know did the best that i could and we do have the advantage of having spoken since we were children so it's it's not uh exactly just a yeah yeah
1: Fire, fire alarm. I just yeah. Another speaker has been inspired. Another speaker has been inspired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so maybe take it from a pra- there's no substitute for practice. Okay.
0: Yeah, so there really is no substitute uh, for practice. And I think another another analogy I like to give is, you know, would Michael Jordan have been Michael Jordan if he only practiced at games? And um, yeah. I, the answer is obviously definitely not. The Matt, the vast majority of his practice happened off court. And it's the same thing if you want to be good at any art and speaking is, is no exception to that. And um, you do have the advantage of having been able to you know, speak since you were a kid. So you, you know the words and all of that kind of stuff, which is good. But speaking in front of audiences is its own special you know, kind of art form. And uh, I went on a, a 50 city tour uh, about four years ago. And it was so incredible to have the experience of giving, you know, the same core speech that many times in a row because uh, you know how it was the first time I gave it to how it was by the last time I gave it was just such an incredible transformation because I knew the bones of the speech so well and they were so familiar to me I didn't have to think about them and then it gave me a lot more space to just have fun with the audience and play and um, I think that's something that speakers often forget is they get so caught up with you know, the message that they, they wanted to deliver and is it going to go well and all of that? Are they going to be clever? That they forget that really people just want to have fun. That's all people really want. They want to be engaged. They want to have fun. And when it's not
1: you, just girls. It's not just girls that want to have fun. Just Everybody girls. just
0: wants to have fun. Um. Yeah. It really is all of us. And when you know your stuff so well, you can cross that one out completely as something you have to worry about. And then you can be more interactive and you can be more playful. And some of the best speeches I've ever given came from this really strong core material I knew, and then I was able to take really big risks with that.
1: So here's a question for you that I, I get asked quite a few times, and I help people with speeches like TEDx speeches or things that are very structured and that it might be one of the first times where it's a big deal for someone to get up and talk. Mm-hmm. And there's this topic of memorizing or not, mm-hmm. and I have my train of thought on it, but I'm it's really on par for this point, what are your thoughts on people memorizing their speeches?
0: Well, it depends how deep of a memorization it is. Okay. I think if it gets, as I said, so ingrained that it's like breathing, you know, going back to the cellist, there's a memorization of exactly where each finger needs to be to produce a certain note, but it's not a conscious memorization. You're talking about deep memory. You're not talking about, you know, a uh, uh, short-term memory. It's entered into long-term memory. So if somebody has practiced to the degree that, They're not even having to think about it. That's pretty amazing, you know, but short term memorization of speeches, I definitely wouldn't recommend because it can come across as wooden and disconnected. Yeah. It would be like a boxer stepping into a ring, already deciding the first 15, you know, punches they were going to (laughs) make. And uh, that's not going to work because to be a powerful speaker, you have to be so connected with the audience that, you know, at this point in my career, I can tell instantly if something that I said lands. I often have to speak in um, other countries where there's uh, there's translators, even you know, and even with that, as you practice enough, you can tell when what you're saying lands or not. And then if it doesn't land, you shift instantly, you know, to say it in a different way or or hone down on a point or something like that. And so the disadvantage you have with just a short-term memorization of speech is that. It would be like this one giant monologue and hopefully your 15 punches you planned work, but the chances are they're not going to.
1: Well, good. I, I, I would echo those comments. And I like to say, don't memorize, prepare and improvise. Yeah. And if you're so prepared, then give yourself the ability to improvise a little bit. Then every, like each time you give a speech, it should be a little different, a little bit of improvisation, a little feeding off the crowd. And so uh, I'm glad that you share the same note of that. But I think that the difference you're pointing out is the short-term memorization versus the long-term memorization. And if you mm-hmm. practice something enough, you beat way past the short-term and you become yes. a, a skilled fighter that isn't sitting there going, hmm, what was that next? Bam! And they're getting knocked out. Yes. <laughs> uh, versus more of a bob and weave. Like I had that visualization, right? Exactly. Yeah, cool. Well, so you're talking about the, you know, speaking worldwide, having translators, being on a 50 city tour. These are all things that I think a lot of people aspire to achieve. So in this last little section, I always like to get your insight on, you know, what has worked for you? And this isn't the the hard sell. This is how you make a million dollars speaking, but it's Mm -hmm. certain things work for certain people. And, you know, how did you come up with the opportunity to be on a 50 state tour or something like that. Did you do that? You know, how do you go after your international speaking opportunities or is it a process of the last 10 years and it's complicated? So what would be some of the things that you could share with people that they might be able to try that has worked for you or to say, don't do this because that doesn't work.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, again, um, I like to just bring it back to, to the cellist analogy, because I think sometimes we will look at something, some of the performance, some of the performance careers in arts differently than we will, you know, at some of the more classically understood arts, you know, something like painting or working on the cello or something. How would you become a famous painter? How would you become, you know, a well sought after cellist? There's really two things that are involved there. One is getting really, really good, you know, at your craft. But secondly, it would be Really having something to offer that somebody else doesn't, and so I had the you know unusual experience of my weird childhood that ended up um, pouring into me building an unusual expertise in human connection that uh, translated into photography, and so I at this point in my career was you know hugely benefited by being able to rise to the top of that particular industry, and even though that industry is Tiny, it's a worldwide industry, and so I was first asked to speak because I won a bunch of awards in the photography industry like ten years ago, and I started a few trends in, in that in that particular genre that you know kind of kind of went around the world. So it, I was very lucky to have that, and um, I think just starting from absolute scratch, breaking into the speaking industry, I don't think it would be very easy definitely not impossible but it's it's not very easy and um, it would be greatly you would be greatly benefited by having an expertise about something that was unusual and nobody else was was talking about it, or a few people were talking about it or if you could develop a way to talk about it in a way that nobody else was was doing
1: and i think that's kind of a that that's a great point because there is this sort of search for instant success exactly. or instant gratification and sometimes people that you may see as a cellist or in their performance, they may even have their success now and make it maybe seem like it was easier than it was, or maybe they just haven't given the whole backstory. And I think if you look at those people, you really can trace back that it didn't just all of a sudden pop. It was a story and it had a backstory, which had a backstory. One of the things I, I help people a lot with personal branding, and I think there's an analogy here, where if you're trying to say be known as a thought leader in a specific space, and if you're trying to do exactly what everybody else is doing because they're the ones at the top, mm-hmm. you've lost your, your authenticity of what makes you different. You almost mm-hmm. have to not look at what people are doing right now and start with your own story and how it is different. And that's how you can stand out. And I think people still are, you know, trying to be like certain speakers that they want to Emanate their success, but Mm -hmm. I think with speaking, there's a unique opportunity to look inward first. Right, start with what you have that nobody else has, and then find a way to communicate it. So I'm, I think that that's inspiring for people, but also frustrating for others who just want to like you know get paid you know huge honorariums and travel around the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I understand that, and I mean it's um, I'm even in the place right now of I have been largely. In the creative you know industry my entire life and the message that i have is for a larger audience and so i'm right now in the process of exploring how to build how do i transition out from you know a very small industry where i'm very well known into a much larger world that i am not very well known in and so even having all of the years of experience that i've had and having you know spoken and made a living from doing this for 10 years of my life it doesn't mean that it's just, it's just easy. You know, any kind of business, there's going to be constant fluctuations and backs and forth and, you know, it's, it's tidal and you have to continue to keep coming up with something fresh to, uh, engage people's imaginations and, uh, to get attention in a way. Hopefully, you know, that's about something that you, you really, really believe in
1: the fire test, make sure it's the fire test, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. fire, the, the fire alarm test. But what's interesting that you you mentioned there is that you've had the success with a very small niche market. And Mm -hmm. you're now able to to step on that as a stepping stool to get to other industries. But would you suggest as a as a tactical strategy to go after a smaller niche market before sort of approaching to try to have a larger market? Do you find that absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think, I think sometimes people want to go speak and do leadership for CEOs and you're like, mm-hmm. good luck with that.
0: Right? Yeah. The
1: people who, who CEOs want to hear from
0: are people who have been CEOs and led companies that have been so impressive that they're impressed by them. It's going to be a tough sell to just get a bunch of you know random CEOs to want to listen to you if you're not a CEO of a huge company. It's not impossible, but the only other way to do it is you'd have to be a a very well-known renowned expert on a field that's very, very, you know, interesting or fascinating to them. And that's why, you know, books can be so important. Is because if you write a book on something, you become the authority on it, you know, and um, I had my own version of that. You know, I put out this body of work as a photographer. That was kind of like my book. And that that was my record, you know, if I was a touring musician and you tour on the record. So generally, to my understanding, there has to be some form of output where people can say, oh, this is this is who this person is. I'm interested in that. I want more of that. The vast majority of my speaking appearances now come from people who have seen me speak already somewhere else. So it's kind of that catch 22 of, you know, once you're out there speaking, then you have more speaking opportunities. Right. How do you get out there in the first place? There has to be—you have to release a record, you know—some form of that. You have to put out a record, and again, like the—the the more real the content, the more honest, the more unusual, the more expert—all of that will be, you know, things that people will be attracted to when they're they're trying to decide if this is something they they want to listen to. But I actually have worked with a lot of musicians, as I mentioned, and I've been around that industry a little bit too, and. But one of the things that I really remember hearing that always kind of stuck with me is so at this one conference and this this person was talking about, you know, being a manager to these big rock stars or whatever. And these people in the audience wanted to be rock stars. And they all thought if they only had a manager, if they could just get a manager, they would be a huge rock star. Hmm. And someone raised their hand and said, you know, I, I have everything I need. I just don't have a manager. Can you please just tell me how do I get a manager? And she looked at this person and said, Trust me, when you're when you're good enough, the manager will come to you. The managers <laughs> will be. That's it's not what you want to hear. Sitting in right. that audience, it's just not. <laughs> it's it's deflating because we have this idea, you know, that our stuff is good enough. And um, for most of us, we have just not really put in the amount of hours that it would take to be a master cello celloist. We just have it. And so, what a person should do until they've really clocked in all of those hours is just practice, practice, practice do free things, you know, at local uh, organizations and communities. I'm working with my local uh, community here in Los Angeles to do some of the speaking programs that people pay a lot of money for, for uh, disadvantaged children, like children of uh, homeless uh, and uh, drug addicted uh, families. And that's not something I get paid for, but it's something that's deeply, deeply fulfilling to me. And um, it's a great way to continue to practice my craft as well as giving back to the community around me. Plus, you know, I build relationships with people who are like-minded, who care about people in the way, you know, similar to the way I do. And um, just, it's, it's a long-term game, I think, is partly what I'm saying here, to, to try to be looking at what three steps do I need, you know, to be Tony Robbins or something. I, I think you need 40 years to be Tony Robbins. I think that's <laughs> what you need, to be Tony Robbins. And in the meantime, like, enjoy it. And in the meantime, live a life where you're building unusual experiences and you're, you're seeing things, you know, that other people aren't seeing. And slowly over time, your brain starts becoming this, you know, very special, unique, individualized thing. And if you just take care of that and do that long enough and well enough, eventually that thing will start putting out fruit and the no ones tasted. And that's when people will be like, this, this is what I want. This is what I need. Where do I get more of this? So
1: well, you're giving me the goosebumps, which means that this is a great time to to end the show. (laughs) Now I've I've heard some superstition on goosebumps that when you get goosebumps, you've either um, experienced it in a in like a different form in either a different life or in the past. And there's moments where I think you get motivated, and I think sometimes that motivation isn't the rah-rah. It's this deep understanding that it will take time and that it's Mm -hmm. okay because in that process that's what it's all about. Like don't skip and go to, to collect your 200 on the go spot. Like, you know, buy properties along the way who, you know, these unique experiences and Such a good point. this really comes down to the, the mindfulness, like the more mindful you can be of your journey, the better your journey is. And the more fun you can have. Cause at the end of the day, boys and girls just want to have fun on and, uh, speaking or music or art can be a tool for you to have fun and to engage the audience on an emotional level whether you're a Jedi and you can make everybody cry or um, a Jedi and make everybody laugh or a Jedi and make everybody just think a little bit differently about, uh, you know, how the information you gave them can change their life in just a little way. Can I, can I close it with one last, one last thing? Absolutely. Just don't give me the goosebumps again. Cause my hair's going to have to, spill. I have to go get a haircut.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah. just, just kind of tying up what you said there. And in addition to that, it's just that, um, there really is no guarantee that we will get to the places that we think that we want to go. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that my brain was not always right about the things that it thought it wanted. <laughs> so my my strategy now at this point is, yes, I do pick in destinations. Yes, I do pick goals. But I really just try to have the best quality of life that I can as I do that. I try to have the most fun that I can as I do that. Because if that's your main goal while you're working towards achieving something it's not dependent on whether or not you achieve it so if your goal is to become a speaker i I would really ask yourself if i want to be a speaker in a year or, or two years how could i have the most fun doing that because then whether or not you ever end up becoming that or not you have a lot of fun along the way and as silly as that might seem or as simple when you're fun your brain is growing and uh, when you're having fun, it's, it's engaged and you're learning. And I think anybody pursuing anything would really be benefited by, by paying attention to just that simple indicator of, am I having fun by this? Am I engaged? Because if you're not, there's just not good chances, even if you do get to the end of that, that you're going to have something really worth delivering
1: well, Jesh, I, I've had a lot of fun in this show here. I've learned a lot. So it was definitely a fulfilling experience. And I mean, I'm here in Orange County, so I'd love to connect with you in LA. Cool. If somebody was going to find more information, what is your favorite social platform or where would you point them? If right now they're like, oh my gosh, I need more Jesh, where do I go?
0: <laughs> well, if you go to my website, jeshdrocks.com, there's a contact form on there. And um, if you are really interested, that's a good you know place to be a part of also. To send me a mail, send me a message and I'll put you, you know, on my, on my contacts. And then Instagram is really the only one that I do anything with uh, these days. jesh D rocks, J E S H D E R O X Instagram.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, I encourage everybody to reach out. I'm going to fill out the contact form and we'll have a coffee or something and see how cool. we can continue to have fun and share a message with the world. Sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, Ryan Fullen here with the one, the only, Jesh d and uh, I'm excited for everyone to take these simple tools and implement them so that they can think better thoughts because thoughts become words and words become things. So Jesh says, think the thoughts you want. Join us on other podcasts here as we explore speakers from around the world to help you become the person that you want to be. And that might be speaking, that might be art, that might be playing the cello for, for all I care. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're signing out and we'll see you find more episodes on worldofspeakers.com. All right. Thank you, Josh. This was a pleasure and we'll see you later. Cool. Thank you.